May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. The Advent season, as we were rightly reminded last week, is one during which we look both backward and forward in time. That's quite correct. But I sometimes worry that when we look back in time on the history of how God has dealt with humanity over the millennia, that oftentimes we are not looking back far enough. I fear that ignorance of the Hebrew Scriptures will make much of Christian truth obscure to us. If you do not understand the Older Testament, however, you will never understand the New Testament. And today, it seems to me, is just such an instance. There are two points about the crucial ministry of John the Baptist that anyone hearing his preaching would have immediately understood that today we are apt not to catch because of our unawareness of the whole history of salvation. John the Baptist just generally cuts a disturbing figure to our contemporary sensibilities. He is not the kind of person you would recruit to be an usher here at church. Good morning. Welcome to the Church of the Advent, you viper. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But do please come in, uh, have a service booklet, and sit in a pew of your choosing. All this, of course, said wearing not a Brooks Brothers suit, but a garment of hair and a leather girdle. And that's the first thing I actually want to remark upon, that detail. that seems so odd and obtrusive to us would have been instantly recognizable to Matthew's audience. All of Matthew's original readers would have recognized the reference right away because this sartorial detail has come up before in the history of Israel. It's in the first chapter of the second book of Kings. The king has been seriously injured and he tells his messengers to go to the shrine of the pagan god Baal to find out whether or not he will recover. But God commissions Elijah the prophet to intercept those messengers with a message of his own, which is that the king of Israel should not be consulting pagan gods at all, and in fact, because he has done so, he will not recover from his injury, but rather will die. And when the king's messengers convey this grim news back to the king, he rather understandably asks, well, who told you that? And his messengers say, it was a weird guy wearing a garment of hair and a leather girdle. And that's all it takes for the king to say, oh no, that sounds like Elijah the prophet. This one detail, that the guy who pronounces judgment on the idolatry and faithfulness of the king of Israel was wearing a garment of hair and a girdle of leather, that is enough to tip off the king that his message of doom comes from Elijah the prophet. So simply by referring to John the Baptist as a guy in a hair garment with a leather girdle, Matthew is telling us that John the Baptist is a sort of new Elijah. So why does that matter? Why Elijah? There's actually lots of reasons, too many to talk about here. There are many parallels 
between what John the Baptist is doing and what Elijah is doing. Today, what's most important for us to focus on is that both of them exercised ministries of preparation. Both of them prepared the people by calling them to repentance out of a deeply immoral and compromised culture of sin and idolatry. Matthew says that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, who spoke of a voice crying out that in the wilderness the way of the Lord should be prepared, and that way is prepared by calling people to repentance amid a fallen culture. This message of preparation, of being made ready to receive the Lord in repentance, this is the message of Advent. And it is why we are asked to consider the ministry of John the Baptist on this, the second Sunday of the season. Elijah prepared the way of the Lord by denouncing idolatry and demanding repentance. And John the Baptist does the same. He prepares the way of the Lord. So what does it mean to prepare today for us? You might have heard it said that in Advent we are to make ready for the coming of the Lord at Christmas. And Christmas is great. That's the easy sell, right? The first coming of the Lord is all sweetness and light, right? Because when the Lord comes at Christmas, he's born as a tiny baby in a manger wearing his golden fleecy diapers, right? Now, some more serious preachers might tell you that we are also to be making ready for the second coming of the Lord. And that's, that's scary. That's the hard sell. Because when the Lord comes to judge the quick and the dead, he won't be quite so cuddly as the first coming. But here's what John the Baptist teaches us about being ready for the coming of the Lord. And that is that his first coming was already more than a little scary. Judgment is already at hand. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. So Advent is serious business. And it always has been. John the Baptist is a prophet of judgment and repentance, just like Elijah was a prophet of judgment and repentance. In Elijah's time, the king of Israel was worshiping a pagan god, and Elijah said, for that you're going to die, and he did die. John the Baptist looks the religious authorities of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right in their eye, and he says, bear fruit that befits repentance, or you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. And not only that, he has a further warning. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. This is the second Old Testament reference that I want to seize upon, in case we don't catch on to it right away. In this case, we're fortunate to have St. Paul as our guide. 
Part of the reason St. Paul is such a major contributor to the New Testament is that he knows everything there is to know about the Old Testament, which you'll notice he is quoting from generously in the epistle reading for today. In his epistle to the Romans, St. Paul says that Christ came in part to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So what is he thinking of? I think he has in mind the patriarch Abraham, and God promised a few things to Abraham, but the essential promise to Abraham that St. Paul is thinking of in this passage, I suspect, is the promise that through Abraham's descendants, all nations would be blessed. The promise is actually to all nations. The promise God made to Abraham was not just that his literal biological descendants would be blessed, but rather that through his descendants, all nations will be blessed. That's the key promise that St. Paul is reading in the many Old Testament quotations he goes on to provide. The word Gentile, by the way, in our translation is really just Latin for nation. So you can substitute that in anytime you see it. So we read with St. Paul, quoting again generously from the Psalms and the Prophets, I will praise thee among the nations and sing to thy name. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. That is to say, rejoice, O nations, with the people of Israel. Praise the Lord, all nations. Let all the peoples praise him. And finally, he who rises to rule the nations in him shall the nations hope. Now, St. Paul, I think, belabors this point because this is actually the very good news of Advent. And this good news is foretold not first in the New Testament, but in the Old If we find ourselves a little startled by John the Baptist and his calls for repentance, then we should take note that the reason for repentance is that there's a great promise that attaches to it. The promise made to Abraham was that all nations will be blessed in his descendants, and St. Paul teaches that in Christ, that blessing has become real. Or as he puts it, Christ has proved God's truthfulness, that when God promised Abraham that the nations would be blessed through his descendants, when he spoke through the Psalms and the prophets that the nations would come to glorify God along with Israel, when he did all those things, God was telling the truth. And in Christ, St. Paul says, that truth has been proved. So at Advent, we're asked to repent and to try to be worthy of just such a blessing rather than to presume upon it as the Pharisees and Sadducees did. John the Baptist indicts the religious authorities of his day for presuming to be inheritors of God's promise of universal blessing to Abraham without having done the hard work of repentance. But part of being prepared 
for the coming of the Lord, part of repentance is precisely not presuming that we can have those promises without the hard spiritual labor. Now, maybe you could say, look, this is all just John the Baptist, right? This is before Christ's first coming. I don't have to worry about this anymore, right? This is all in the past. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ himself personally vindicates all of John the Baptist's teaching. In the very next chapter, Matthew says that the first words of public preaching uttered by Jesus are word-for-word identical to the first words of public preaching uttered by John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is quoting John the Baptist verbatim. And at the very end of his ministry, he is still talking about John the Baptist. The very same religious authorities that John the Baptist confronted at the beginning of Matthew, Jesus again confronts again and again, and finally once more at the end of Matthew, 20 chapters later, Jesus confronts the religious authorities about John the Baptist. He says these words. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. And even when you saw that, you still did not afterward repent and believe him. At Advent, we look to the past. But we don't look just to look, we look for wisdom. And John the Baptist's teaching is in that past. But his wisdom has not expired. John the Baptist calls us to repentance. He calls us to repudiation of our idolatry. He calls us to refuse presumption upon the grace of God. John the Baptist called God's people to be prepared for the Lord's first coming, and Jesus Christ himself at his coming personally echoed that call quite precisely. The tax collectors and the harlots believed him. The religious authorities did not. The call that Jesus puts before the religious authorities of his day to repent and believe, that's his commandment to us today too. Which means that the way to prepare for the second coming of the Lord and the way to prepare for his first coming are really just the same. Amen.